Today's episode is sponsored by the good people at Quint Deep Sea Fishing on Amity Island. For a reasonable price, they'll find your fish. Catching and killing it, though, is extra. When you need a bigger boat, think Quint's. Hoi hoi and welcome to the Hi-Hat Film Podcast, a comical and critical look at the world of film. Episode number 29 is another film comes up for consideration for entry into the most exclusive club in cinema, the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. This week, it's Hi-Hatter Dan Lovely who makes the trip to Hi-Hat HQ to plead the case for one of his favourite films. Clearly not looking to tax himself too much, Dan has gone for the seemingly untouchable 1975 Steven Spielberg classic Jaws. Yes, the only movie star to have ever literally chewed the scenery is up for consideration, but is it worthy to sit alongside, deep breath, the Big Lebowski, Princess Mononoke, Theatre of Blood, Fight Club, Kill List, Stand By Me and She Wore a Yellow Ribbon? Only time will tell. As well as that, we have quickfire questions and another round of Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes, but first, in case you've never actually seen the film, or are confused slash terrified at the idea of moving pictures on a giant screen, here's a clip to give you an idea of what Jaws is all about. And obviously, it goes without saying, from this point on, there's probably going to be a spoiler or two. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. <laughs> this is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. when you thought it was safe to go back into the cinema we are here again with another 
submission for a potential candidate for the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame and joining me this week on the show to make the case for uh, one of cinema's all-time classic movies is uh, Dan Lovely. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you very much. What you won't be able to hear, Dan, is um, due to the miracle of sound editing that I am playing the the very, very famous soundtrack to Jaws in the background, just to kind of set the tone, just to kind of up the tension a little bit. So um, if you can just pretend there's this constant looming... It's playing in my head. <laughs> okay, so you are going to be submitting, Dan, the 1975 Hollywood Steven Spielberg classic Jaws. Excited to talk about the film? Very much so. It's one of my favourite films. Uh, I... Uh... I've seen it dozens of times, um, and it's always been something that I will watch it no matter where it is, uh, when I turn on the TV, if it's at the end, at the beginning, it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I, I watched it again for the first time in quite a few years, just the other day, just to kind of uh, prepare for the show, and uh, yeah, it just, it doesn't... It doesn't age, it's just it's as good as I remember it being. So I'm very excited to talk about that. I do, of course, hope that you get the chance to talk about that, but as you know, before that, we have to uh, put you through a couple of tests just to deem whether or not you're worthy to submit a film in the first place. So I'm happy to run the gauntlet. Great. Well, we're going to start with a round of quick-fire questions. First up, first answers that come into your head. Guardians of the Galaxy or the Avengers? Avengers. Han Solo or Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones. 3D or not 3D? Oh gosh, that depends. Um, I'm going to say not 3D, unless it's shot in 3D. It's a very, very thoughtful and good answer. Uh, Woody or Buzz Lightyear? Um, Woody. Dumbledore or Gandalf? Gandalf. Yeah, it's got to be, hasn't it? Schwarzenegger or Stallone? Mm, as an action hero, um, Stallone, I, I, I'm, I'm biased towards Rocky. Uh, Kevin Spacey or Morgan Freeman? Um, I'd say Kevin Spacey. Oh, I think I would too. And uh, finally, just to, in line with the, the your choice of today's film, Jaws 2, Jaws 3D, or Jaws the Revenge? Oh, God. Um, I guess Jaws 2 because it's the least offensive. Yeah, but Jaws the Revenge got Michael Caine in it, so, yeah. That's true, but that makes, <laughs> makes me feel bad for Michael Caine. Well, don't feel bad for him, because he famously did an interview after Jaws the Revenge, and somebody, um, or, or years later after doing it, an interviewer asked him, did you ever sit down and watch the film? And he said, I haven't seen it, by all accounts it's very bad, but I saw the house that it bought, and it, that was awesome. So, he's, he's yeah. doing okay with it. Um, clearly in it for the money on that one, and a nice sweet trip to the Bahamas. So, well done, Michael Caine. Okay, good good round of quick-fire questions. I think we can progress on. Uh, you're going to be the third guest on the show to run the gauntlet of Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes, or as um, you are one of our American listeners, we would call it Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes, as is appropriate for this side of the Atlantic. So you get a film category, and based on its score on RottenTomatoes.com, you you have to guess whether the next film scored higher or lower than it. The bar's been set with the previous two contestants. The first person to run it was Nikki from a couple of weeks ago. She scored 8 out of 10. And the week after that, it was Ronnie, who was doing James Bond films, and he scored 5 out of 10. So I would say aiming somewhere between 5 and 8 out of 10 is a pretty good score, Dan. Alright. Okay, so your choice of categories for Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes. You can have Disney movies of the 1980s and 1990s. You can have movies that feature talking animals. 
or you can have Martin Scorsese movies? Um, I will say Disney movies from the 1980s and 90s. Alright, very good. So we're going to start with uh, one of the classics. We're going with the 1989 Disney classic, The Little Mermaid, which is the first film that we're doing on this, and it scored 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. So the next film I'm giving you in the sequence is the Oscar-nominated Beauty and the Beast. So do you think that scored higher or lower than Little Mermaid with 92%? That is tough. Um, I think it scored higher. I can tell you there was 1% difference between them, Dan. (laughs) And with 93%, Beauty and the Beast scored higher. So you're off to a great start. Next up is... Pocahontas. I would say lower than Beauty and the Beast. At 56%, it did, of course, score lower. So that's two out of two. Do you remember who did the voice of John Smith in the Pocahontas version? No, I don't. Everybody's favorite Australian, Mel Gibson. Oh. So um, next up from Pocahontas at 56% is The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I think came out a couple of years later. Do you think uh, that scores yeah. higher or lower, or 50%? I'm going to say lower due to how complicated and conflicted the plot was. Hmm. Well, this film came out in 1996. Had Demi Moore doing the voice of Esmeralda, Jason Alexander doing the voice of uh, Hugo, and it scored 73%, so it actually did better. Yeah. So you've got two out of three so far. The next one up is The Fox and the Hound. Do you think that scored higher or lower than The Hunchback of Notre Dame? With 73%. It's been a long time since I've seen that. Um, I'm going to say... uh, I'm going to say higher. At 69%, Dan, I'm sorry to tell you... You were wrong on that one as well. So two out of four so far. The next one up, uh, we're moving away from animated Disney and we're moving into live action. And a film that kind of scared the bejesus out of me as a child. It was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids from 1989. Do you think that scored higher or lower than 69% with The Fox and the Hound? I'm going to say that scored higher. And I hope that scored higher. (laughs) The Rick Moranis classic vehicle in which he played the scientist and he shrank his uh, kids and they got went on a terrifying journey that involved giant spiders and ants and oh, I just hated it. Um, 75, <laughs> 75% it scored, so you got that one right. Congratulations. It's got a great score. Don't, uh, don't, don't write the whole thing off. I'd have to go, I have to go back. It's been a while since I've seen it. I don't remember that. But, uh, I'll take your word for it. All right, next up, feel the rhythm, feel the rhyme. Get on up. It's bobsled time. Cool runnings. Seventy-five percent is the score to be. Let's see. Um, just because it's such a, a classic, I want to say higher. Once again, there was a one percent difference between "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids" and "Cool Runnings." Unfortunately, on this occasion, it was seventy-four percent. It came in at so just off on that one, Dan. Next up is um, the 1998 animated feature with the voice of Eddie Murphy. It is Mulan. Um, 74. Uh, 74%. 74%. 
Well, that was a big Disney princess movie. I'm going to say higher. At 86%, Milan came in higher. Well done. Okay, so next up is one of my favorite Disney films of all time, featuring the late, great Robin Williams, Aladdin. That's uh, definitely higher. 94% it came in at. Yeah, absolutely right to go higher. Um, you got two more left. You've got five so far, so you could end up with the highest score as seven. Next up is The Lion King. So, I'm, I'm regarded as by many as an absolute Disney classic, one of the best, but at 94% from Aladdin, the bar is set pretty high. Yeah, that is, that is a high score to be. Um, well, as I consider it to be the best Disney film ever made, I'm going to say that's higher. I'm sorry to say it came in at 90%. Oh. So... Very much loved by a lot of people, but not quite as well loved. And I was surprised about that one as well, actually. I thought, you know, I think Aladdin is a great film, but I think Lion King just has some that little bit extra special about it. I would have, I would have thought that would come in at higher. And uh, something about doing Hamlet, uh, something about doing Hamlet with lions that I just, it really makes me happy. Yeah, and any film that is bold enough to have um, a singing talent involving Rowan Atkinson and Whoopi Goldberg, for me, deserves yeah. to go down in history <laughs> as, a, as a classic. Um, so finally, uh, your final one is from 1997, featuring the vocal talents of Danny DeVito, it is Hercules. 90% oh. is the score to beat. Alright, um, fun movie, but I'm gonna say lower than 90%. Yeah, it came in at 83%, and I agree, it was a fun movie. I, I liked uh, James Wood did an, did an impressive turn in the the voice cast, but yeah, 83% Hercules came in at. Um, that rounds it up, your score out of 10 for Disney movies of the 1980s and 1990s. Dan, you scored 6 out of 10. Passing great. It, it puts you right there, right there in the middle. You're, you're, you're not last on the scoreboard at all, so well done to you. Thank you. I think we can take it easy on you now, and we can move on to talking about your film that you're submitting for the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. It is, of course, the 1975 Steven Spielberg classic, Jaws. It's a film that scored 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, seeing as we're uh, talking about that. It scored an 81 on the IMDb uh, out of 10, and it's currently ranked on the IMDb's top 250 movies at number 201. So it is an absolute classic. Before we get too much into why you love the film, Dan, can you can you start us off just by summarizing the plot as if people don't know it already? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's, uh, it takes place at, uh, at a small island, Amity Island. Um, I believe they kind of used uh, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket as, uh, as a base for that. Um, for, for the idea of, of Amity Island, where a uh, somewhat reluctant police chief um, is uh, forced to mobilize a town to stop a killer rogue shark. <laughs> so wonderfully simple. Um, yeah, we've had people come on the show and they've had to try and fight their way through plot synopsises of things like <laughs> Fight Club and things like that, but when it comes down to yeah. Jaws, it is... So wonderfully simple, you know, one of those original high-concept movies, um, tracking down a killer shark. Um, versus nature. Yeah. So, cards on the table, Dan. You might think Jaws, definitely considered as one of the best films in the world, lots of people's favorite films. Um, you, you're probably thinking you're coming on the show today, you're going to get to talk about your film, and it's, it's an open goal for you. You just have to tap, tap the ball into the back of the net, and the film's going to be submitted. And... 
you're you're right and you're wrong because I do absolutely love this film, but there's a couple of things that are going to be set out for you to just. It's not going to be an easy walk in the park for you today. I mean, for me, first of all, I mean, it is a film that we've talked about its accolades, 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, critically loved. In 2001, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, which uh, accepts films for preservation deemed on cultural, historical, or aesthetically significant films. What I'm saying is, this film, it'll be okay without the submission to the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. So don't feel like just because it's won all these accolades that it's just going to walk right in. Um, so with that in mind, I, I really want you to sell the film to me, Dan. Why, why do you love this film so much? Uh, Jaws is an incredible work of, of art. Um, I think it's Steven Spielberg's masterpiece. Um, beyond E.T., beyond um, his involvement in, um, in things he did with George Lucas, I, I think it's something that um, transcends genres. Uh, well, I guess at heart it's... I guess you could call it a horror film, um, but if it is, it's, I'd say, the best horror film um, because it doesn't just stay there. Uh, what it... What it does when it, when you watch it, it it brings you in. Um, you it is so so well written uh, for one thing. Um, every I don't think I, I honestly I, I watched it recently. You know I can't think of an unnecessary line or an unnecessary scene that doesn't add some sort of character development um, or or some uh, very deeply engrossing uh, plot point. Um, and it just. Every time I watch it, I I can't help but but get chills. I to your point about it being well written, and it's something when I watched it the other day, it's something I hadn't picked up on before. But what I really loved is in like the opening scenes with uh, Brody, is he is kind of when the first when the first shark attack happens, and he's going through town and he's trying to get the sign set up and stuff, and he just has all these people coming up to him and so beleaguered, yeah, and they're but they're talking about. Um, Oh, this person parked in front of my store, and it's just like they're bringing all these minor, yeah, the kids minor. Yeah, chop the fence. Yeah, crying chopping fences, and it's just like life. Those were considered like the big news stories in in Amity, and then for this major, major thing to happen, I just thought that was so, so well done. I was really impressed by that. Yeah, it shows. Uh, it's it's great because you see, um, there's something about about the reluctant hero. Um, that, that I've always been drawn to, someone who doesn't really want to get out there and start fighting evil, but just wants to live a normal life um, before they are, are forced into it. Uh, and it just shows how, you know, Brody's not happy, really, on, on anybody. He'd rather, be, uh, he'd rather be in New York. He'd rather be, uh, he's a fish out of water, you could say. Um, so hey. make a pun, but, <laughs> but it shows that the town is kind of complacent and, and sort of satisfied with where they are, you know, understandably so. They're a, a beach town, and it's the summer. Um, but this, the character of Brody, just has such a, a a depth of emotion that he, while he doesn't really want to be there, he he will absolutely go to to all lengths to to do what's right. And it's a terrific uh, performance from from Roy Scheider as well, mm-hmm. and just one of many terrific performances. Do you, do you remember the first time you saw the film? <laughs> um, somewhat, I, I, I was probably maybe I don't know, 12 or 13, um, and I just I had, I, I think I had, 
I think a part of it had, you know, I knew there was a, a big killer show. I had heard of Jaws before. Mm. Um, I think it was, you know, I was excited. Uh, this is the first time I was getting to see a movie that my parents hadn't wanted me to see previously. And um, I think I watched it alone. So there, there was that, uh, that isolated feeling of, of, uh, of fear, I guess. Uh, but the, I, what, the, what the movie did so well for me then was, it, it really put me in um, place of the characters, and I, I really felt the terror and the dread exactly where I think Spielberg wanted me to. It's a film that certainly makes an impression, and you, you kind of touched on how it kind of trans transcends its place. And for me, I remember being traumatized as a kid, and it might have been even before I'd even seen the film. I was aware that there was this film about a killer shark. And to me, it, it traumatized me perhaps before I'd even seen it. We had... Um, a swimming pool quite close to my to my house when I was younger called the Royal Commonwealth Pool. And it had a diving, a, a, an official kind of Olympic set-up diving pool. So it had the, the two-and-a-half-meter, five-meter, seven-meter, ten-meter diving boards. And with that, it has, because you're diving off a ten-meter diving board, you have a very, very deep pool in order to catch you. And I used to dive quite a lot. I like to dive. And whenever I dived in, as soon as I hit the water... I have never, the fastest I will ever swim in my life was when I was swimming in that particular pool of water, just because it was so deep, and in my mind, a shark was going to swim out from the bottom, as it was impossible as that is, and if, if I could have swum that fast in a normal pool, I could have, you know, I could have possibly made the Olympics, but the point, the roundabout point I'm trying to make is it's a film that embeds itself into your consciousness, perhaps without even seeing it, and I think there's something really special about that. Yeah, you know, I definitely, um, I definitely agree with you in terms of uh, it being a little traumatizing. Um, the scene where uh, Brody first sees the shark when it attacks um, Alex Kintner, the, the boy on the raft, mm. uh, it's really gruesome. Um, and uh, you know, um, you you see everyone. You don't you know the shark is coming. You hear the music. You see the shark's point of view. Uh, you don't know which person he's going to get. But, but all of a sudden, you just see this shape. And you don't see the whole thing, but you, you you see the raft go and just a fountain of blood, which I've never seen anything like that in a movie before. I didn't think they they did that in movies that you know. And I it, I think that was the point that hooked me. And I realized, um, well, this is this is uh, there's no going back now. <laughs> um, and uh, I think I think it's such a pivotal point in the movie too. Um, the uh, the the way uh, the way Roy Scheider stands up so suddenly mm. when he sees it, just in in total shock and 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 horror of of what's unraveling before him, that that's always stuck with me. I, I'm rewatching that film. I mean, I completely agree. It's funny that you've highlighted that because that is the scene that I highlighted in my notes when preparing for the the podcast today. Because. People will make talk a lot about that first scene where it's the the, the lone girl swimming, and it, and it's certainly it's certainly a, a powerful scene. But for me, that yeah. scene that you've just talked about, that is the one that really stands out for me because it's just set up so perfectly. Because it kind of focuses on the different people in the water, and you know, you maybe only get five ten seconds with each person, but you kind of get a yeah. feeling, you kind of get a wee insight into their their holiday that they're on, and you think, well, who's it going to be? And and yeah, as you say, it's just like, it's in the distance, you just see this, this eruption of blood out of the water, and you, 
It's unbelievable. And the, the very fact that it's like a small child that is the one yeah, that's getting killed, it's like, geez, no one is safe. Right. I think um, in the beginning, uh, seeing uh, uh, Chrissy get, you know, you know, kind of ripped back and forth and, and pulled under when you don't see the shark is certainly creepy and that perfectly sets up the tone. But uh, to the audience, she's, you know, she's kind of, uh, she, there's less innocence with her. She's mm-hmm. drunk, she's at a party, um, and not that she deserves to be eaten by a shark, but all, but compared to just a little boy on a raft yeah. who's just swimming, this, it, you realize, like, the shark, you know, obviously doesn't care. Yeah. She has no. Uh, she is like the typical fodder for your your nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties killers. You know, they focus on the 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 attractive young blonde, but uh, yeah, when you think, oh god, this little kid with his his poor mum sitting on the beach, yep. sunbathing, no one's safe. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic. So, what 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 do you think it is that makes it so special? Do you think it's uh, Spiel- I mean, you said it's Spielberg's masterpiece. Do you think it's down to him? Do you think it's down to the cast? I mean. We obviously got to talk a little bit about John Williams's score, but you know. yeah, certainly, um, yeah, you know, I think it. I think it is a lot of uh, a lot of collaboration, um, and um, I mean, uh, Spielberg is was lucky being able to have um, have the book to, to go off of mm. uh, for one thing, but um, I think that just what he did um, casting wise was was uh, was great. You have. Um, you have, you know, a little bit of star power. Um, you have, uh, uh, you know, three or four uh, well, well-known well people. Um, but for the most part, I'd say the majority of the, the cast is, is pretty unknown. Yeah. Um, and I think that was that was a good idea. Um, I think Spielberg gets really great performances out of people um, and gets just their natural responses. And I think if it had been something that was loaded with famous people, that might not have been the case. Um, you would have, uh, I think you would have missed the, uh, the small town feel of it. Mm. Um, uh, certainly Williams's score is phenomenal. Just the, the contrast from the, the happy light, you know, kind of skipping orca theme. It's just so, you know, it's like, oh, we're going for a holiday on the, on the water. Let's go fishing to just the dark, murky simplicity of, of the shark's theme, um, mm-hmm. where it's just, you, you know, what's coming. Um, it sets the tone so well. Yeah, I just uh, I struggle to think of a film that in uh, a score that captures the tone and the subject of a film so perfectly, and it's just such a simple pattern. But you know, I guess it's between E and F or F and F sharp, and it's mm. remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And again, you know, talking about how the film transcends genre. I mean, that that music transcends the film. You know, it's now synonymous, not just with just with the fact that it's from this film, but whenever you see like a group of kids kind of messing around in a swimming pool or something, and they're yeah. they're doing the shark, you all you hear them doing is that da dum da dum. I'm I'm pretty sure I knew that that theme before I had ever seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean you'll have people that have never don't know anything about the film, but they'll they'll know that. It's remarkable. And going back to the cast, there was there was one you know. Obviously, Robert Shaw is superb as Quint, and Richard Dreyfuss is terrific as Hooper. Uh, one character who I really, really enjoyed this time around was um, the mayor, Vaughn, who um, yeah. played by Murray Hamilton, and he's just perfect in that role. Yeah, what a, a great, uh, kind of, like, 
prototype villain, I guess, for the for the movie. Just yeah. someone who he thinks he's doing what's best, and he is just such an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> you know, always uh, always about the the profit, all about all about his town doing. Yeah, well. the profit, the voters, and, and <laughs> hushing up the story. And I, you know, I can't really blame him, but the way he does it with just you know such a, a smirk, mm-hmm. uh, he knows better than anyone in the in the town. Mm-hmm. Um, it just you know, you you come to sort of love to hate him a little bit, and so that scene in the hospital when um, when Brody forces him to, to sign the paper to, to hire Quint, um, you see him broken down. That I, you know, that's something that I don't think you see in movies a lot to to really feel for for someone that you had previously hated in the mm-hmm. film. Yeah, it's a it's a really good performance. I was really really impressed. It was like. I didn't even remember that character, and then just watching it again, thinking, "Wow, that's terrific!" doesn't doesn't get enough said about him, I would say. I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of a boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. It was Ben Gardner's boat. It was all chewed up. I helped tow it in. You should you should have seen him. Where where is that tooth? Did you see it, Brody? No, I didn't see it. He, he dropped it. Get I had an accident. Way in. And what did you say the name of this shark is? It's a carcarid and carcarius. It's a great white. But you, you don't have the tooth. Look, we depend on the summer people here for our very lives. You are not going and to have a summer unless you deal with this problem. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. I mean, we're going to have to tell the Coast Guard. Mr. Vaughan, we're going to have to contact the repellent. shark We're going to have to put extra deputies on because every nut in the world is going to come in here. I don't think one of you are familiar with our problems. I think that I am familiar with the fact that you are going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you on the now wait a second, wait a second. There are two ways to deal with this problem. You're either going to kill this animal or you're going to cut off its food supply. Larry, we have to close the beaches. It was a famously very troubled shoot. I mean, it was meant to cost $4 million. It ended up costing somewhere towards $9 million. And I think a lot of their problems were with the, the bloody mechanical shark that they had. And, uh, yeah. you know, it pushed, it, I think it just about tripled the shooting time. But it also meant that they had, they could, they had so many problems with the robot shark that they couldn't, have the shark in their shots as often, but I think that kind of adds to it. Absolutely. I honestly think that was a stroke of serendipity. Um, you know, to, to, I think to effectively convey, to convey horror, uh, you have to have the unknown, the, un, the unseen, um, the dark, so, so that your imagination can fill in, you know, X, Y, Z, uh, awful things. Um, and you know, I was thinking about it today, and I just kept thinking about um, ancient Greek dramas where the most horrifying scenes were always off stage. You know, Oedipus would go blind himself um, off stage, or, or uh, some horrible thing would happen, and then the chorus would come on to tell you about it. Um, I think that that there's really something to, to be said about that, especially in a world today where you know you have horror movies that are kind of just torture porn, and you see everything happening and it's it's frightening and kind of disturbing, but it, it only has that surface level of fear. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't allow your imagination to, to sink in there. Mm. When you do see the shark in all its glory, and when it well, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, when it munches down on Quint in the boat, I mean it's it's graphic, it's horrible, yeah. and like yeah, it's just to see him. And that's just, what you went to see the movie for, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's what. Yeah, and. It's a point I return to time and time again is, 
yes, it, it doesn't... The actual shark itself, no, it doesn't look like a perfect shark and you don't believe necessarily it's a real shark, but it's there and you know that that is a person kind of inside a shark at that point. You're willing to sp suspend it way more than if it was a, a computer a computer shark swallowing up somebody, I think. Yeah, far more effective than, than any computer-generated uh, shark could have been. Some, I, I really... I really love that that era of you know the the seventies and, and early eighties with Spielberg and Lucas choosing to use you know puppets or, or robots instead of you know um, what Lucas has become today when and just fill everything in with the green screen and we'll figure it out later. Um, it's just it's so much it's so much easier for the actor for one thing I think to to get a sense of, of what they're dealing with um, when you actually have a a physical uh, physical shark, for instance, to, to be able to play off of, even if it's a robot, even if it's um, uh, a man by somebody inside it, you can see it. You you know what what's happening um, mm -hmm. in their eyes when they follow. Yeah. yeah, you're you're willing to believe. You know, it might not look perfect, but it's there, and you could reach out exactly. and touch it if you wanted to. And mm -hmm. uh, I feel like that is something that is still missing today. I I, I wish people would challenge themselves more in terms of like updating the puppet technology or the, the modeling technology a little bit more. But, um, that's that's a rant I return to every couple of episodes on this show, so I'll maybe stick a pin <laughs> in that again for now. I won't use use your film as a platform to, <laughs> to tout my own um, puppeteering agenda. Um, I don't think we can finish without uh, a talk about Robert Shaw as, as I, Clint. You know, I, I, uh, I wanted to make a point about, about uh, him um, that I think personally the far away the best scene in the movie is the um, the monologue where he's talking about the USS Indianapolis, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is you know a, a real thing that that happened. Yeah, um, World War Two. Uh, that is absolutely. I'm, I'm getting chills right now just thinking about it. It's uh, it, it's so well shot, and the way he the way he delivers that that monologue kind of you know just the worst thing that has ever happened to him in his entire life and how he's a little cavalier and, and, and smirky about it because he has to be because he can't go back into that the, the reality of it. It's just mm -hmm. it's just so chilling. Um, I, I think that's easily the scariest part of the, the film and the shark isn't even in it. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into her side chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian, the lady just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. Eleven hundred men went into the water. The vessel went down in twelve minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, thirteen footer. You know, you know that when you're in the water, chief, you tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. Well, we didn't know. But our bomb mission had been so secret, no distress signal had been sent. <laughs> they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's... Kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was 
So out comes the nearest man, that man, he starts pounding and hollering and screaming. Sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eye. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in, and they rip you to pieces. <laughs> Know by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, the average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, Bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water, it was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura. So she swung in low and he saw us to the young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway. He saw us and he come in low and three hours later, a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out, the sharks took the rest, June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. It's a couple of minutes of dialogue, but that's that's all you need to for his backstory anyway. That's yeah. that's why he the way he is, that's why he does what he does, and it's summarized so perfectly, delivered so unbelievably perfectly. I think his um his intro is really strong as well, and nails on the chalkboard, and yeah. you know who I am, you know what I do, I'll I'll find your shark for $3,000, but I'll catch him and kill him for $10,000. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny, I'm not sure if you've seen it, I, I'm sure you could find it on YouTube, but um, Steven Spielberg originally had a, a separate um, introduction to, to Quinn's character, where he goes into a music store to buy piano wire uh, for, for the, the fishing line, and it's this kind of, it, it, I know why, I, I, can, I understand why Spielberg cut the scene, but it's such a brilliant insight into the Quint's character. Um, this little boy is uh, learning the clarinet, and he's playing Ode to Joy, and he's clearly messing it up. Um, and Quint sits behind him and just starts kind of uh, da, 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 you know, doing the song along with him. And the more he does it, the more the kid messes up. And the more the kid messes up, the louder Quint gets. And it just shows how... He is so out of touch with reality, but such a such a hysterical character, uh, and and you know he he's really honestly uh, traumatizing this poor kid who just wants to learn to play the clarinet. But uh, yeah, I need to check that. Out. That, that that's fantastic. 
before we we bring it all in and before we we get to the whether it's in or not just a a chance to make one final plea for it and why does this film deserve to go in the hall of fame and this isn't necessarily a something to do with personal feeling but maybe looking at like its impact on the world of cinema and popular culture popular culture why why should jaws go into the hall of fame dan well when you look at uh, movies that are released today uh, i'd say there's basically two big times of the year when they come out you know um a little before christmas and in the summer and Jaws kind of effectively uh, invented the summer blockbuster. It was a movie that people went to see again and again and again. I remember talking to my father, who said he saw it something like three or four times. And, you know, in the 70s, I don't really... I wasn't around, but I, I don't think that was something people did too often, was to, to you know, uh, see something um, that often. And I think... One of the, the, the best things about the, the film is that it just it delves into fear so well, and you know um, it it shows uh, it shows the human psyche kind of like uh, split open. You know, it, it, depending on who you are, um, uh, when you see the movie, you certainly have a, a visceral reaction. Um, and like you were saying, you know, uh, people. There's nobody I, I I could think of who doesn't know that theme, whether they've seen the movie or not, and it's just sort of uh, bled into pop culture um, in a way that uh, very very few uh, other horror films have. Um, certainly, there are some that that would make the list, but uh, I, I don't think anything comes close to Jaws. Yeah argument about it kind of beginning the tradition of summer blockbusters is is definitely true it it kind of started this new trend of action orientated high budget high concept films and it's a fair argument but i feel like you might have shot yourself in the foot because now you know whereas in 1975 they get something as fantastically brilliant as jaws today we are getting never-ending installments of Transformers movies from Michael Bay. So I wonder, I wonder if this this film has done more harm than good to, uh, well, to cinema. That's, that's a, definitely a, a good point. I think uh, part of that is Hollywood looking at something and saying, oh, look, there's a shark and it's eating people. Let's, let's make a lot of money and do this again and again. And, mm-hmm. oh, hey, let's... I think, unfortunately, uh, I don't want to go too much into a rant here, but... <laughs> please uh, do, please, please do. Uh, well, you know, uh, I love Hollywood, but uh, what it what it has become um, certainly not completely, but what it's become is just a money making machine, and you know maybe it was always that. But uh, when you when you make a movie nowadays, I think you the producers aren't looking at you know the impact of what the what what the impact of the film will be. They're looking at how much money it will make and what we can make after this, uh, how many sequels we can do with this. Um, and while that may have been partly responsible, uh, while Jaws may have been partly responsible, um, I, I can't completely hold it uh, 100% responsible because I think what it should do is call people to make better movies um, because that's what people will ultimately go and see. Uh, and, you know, people will... I, I'm, I'm happy to go and watch The Avengers, but I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to watch that again and again. Uh, I'm not going to watch that, uh, I'm not going to turn on the TV and say, oh, the Avengers is on. I'm, that's something that I probably have to be in the, in the right mood to, to see. Um, whereas Jaws just, uh, it, just the way it's 
it's just written so beautifully well. Um, so I guess uh, <laughs> I guess I'd say just take what Hollywood has become with a grain of salt <laughs> well, compared to uh, to Jones. Well, I mean, the, all jokes aside, and I have been playing something of, or at least I tried to be playing devil's advocate for the film because on last week's show I talked about this. Didn't want the Hall of Fame to just be a, a list of all the greatest films of of all time. I wanted it to go a little bit deeper than that. So I, I, I sort of was came into today's show wanting to kind of play devil's advocate and you know wanting to maybe see uh, maybe there isn't going to be a place for this. But you've made so many fantastic points. I mean, you you argue that it is Steven Spielberg's best film. Steven Spielberg, who is one of the most prolific. Um, Popcorn cinema. In fact, that's a, that's almost a belittling his work. One of the most popular and successful film directors of any period and of any um, kind of any kind of national uh, cinema. He's an absolute treasure. Um, and your point in it being one of his best works or his best work, I think, is valid. I I struggle to. I, I go back and forth between this and Jurassic Park for my favourite, but it's certainly up there. The fact that it's able to transcend genre, you know, it's a horror film, it's a it's a, a film about male bonding in a way, it's a film about, you know, this panic gripping a community. Um, comparing it to Greek tragedies and the action happening coming off that, I think that's great. I think, you know, you talked about how this film has managed to lodge itself into public consciousness whether people have seen the film or not and I wonder if there is any better example of a film that has done that just through its music and through its subject matter you know it it taps into a very real fear and it has embedded itself into it more in in a way for people you don't even have to see the film anymore so you've talked about all that and you also took um, my argument uh, about it uh, blockbusters and you turned it on its head by suggesting that it is the original and perhaps the best summer blockbuster so as much as I came into this thinking oh, well do we really need Jaws in the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame for uh, with everything does it need another accolade after everything that's been said about it but I'll tell you what I watched it two days ago and I loved every single second of it it still terrified me even though I pretty much knew everything that was going to happen I was still blown away by the performances, probably more so than I've ever have been before. Um, and just during like the 30 or so minutes we've talked about it, I, I it, it's just been a, a pleasure reliving all of that. So in spite of myself, then of, of course, Jaws goes into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. So congratulations to you. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I, honestly, I, I agree with what you said. You know, when you're enjoying every minute of it, I I can't I can I can't recall any any part of that movie that I ever want to fast forward or, or skip through or that makes me feel bored. I I'm I'm literally gripped from the moment it starts. Yeah, it is it is terrific. And if you're listening and you haven't seen it in a while, for goodness' sake, do yourself a favor. <laughs> do yourself a favor. <laughs> do yourself a favor. Get it watched again. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dan, for coming on. Thank you very much for you know suggesting the film and therefore making me go back and enjoying it all over again. It's been great. Thanks very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. You all know me. Know how I earn a living. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't going to be easy. It's bad fish. 
Not like going down the pond chasing bluegills or tommy cats. This shark swallow you whole. Shaking, tenderizing, down you go. And we gotta do it quick. That'll bring back the tourists. That'll put all your businesses on a paying basis. But it's not gonna be pleasant. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for 10. And you gotta make up your minds. You wanna stay alive and ante up? You wanna play it cheap? Be on welfare the whole winter. I don't want no volunteers. I don't want no mates. There's too many captains on this island. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. The Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. And I'm sick of the Hi-Hat! Another day and another successful entry into the Hall of Fame. Congratulations to Jaws and congratulations to Dan as well for submitting the eighth film onto the list. The more of these episodes we do, the closer we're getting to having our first unsuccessful submission. But when a case is laid down so thoughtfully and with such passion, it makes it very hard to say no. The very next day after recording with Dan, there came a clear sign that I'd made the right call. While working on my day job at an American camp, we had a group of... 6th graders, that's 11th and 12th graders to our non-American listeners, and within the ranks of these kids was a young man who was wearing a bright yellow t-shirt with the infamous worm's eye view of a shark that anyone who's ever seen the film will be all too familiar with. And just above the illustration were the words, I'm Jossum. So charmed was I by the, the wordplay that I was willing to overlook the blatant copyright infringement that was on display with the use of that image. When I asked the boy if he'd seen Jaws, perhaps unsurprisingly, he said no, but it was vindication of everything that Dan and I had talked about, further proof of the impact that that film has made on the popular consciousness, even now, almost 40 years later. And it's with that I say a fond farewell for this week. Be sure to subscribe to the Hi-Hat Film Podcast on iTunes, so it can be magically uploaded onto your MP3 device as soon as a new episode is available. If you want to support the podcast, then please feel free to leave a wee rating and review on iTunes and like the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash hi-hat film review. And finally, if you would like to come on the podcast and make a case for a film you would love to be included into the Hall of Fame, spoiler alert, I'm probably going to let it in. It's just an excuse to chat about an awesome film for half an hour or so. Then send me an email at hihatfilmreview at gmail.com. That's it for me for another week, and I'll leave you with the immortal final words of Apollo Creed in Rocky IV. I want you to promise me you're not going to stop this fight, no matter what. No matter what. Shift splint. Here goes nothing. Ah!